Welcome to NCHE Presents, Leaders Pursuing Health Equity in America. Our nation is experiencing a strong movement for truth, racial healing, and transformation. This movement is advancing in communities, on college campuses, and in business sectors. America must acknowledge the truth. Racism has existed here for centuries, and we can redress it by healing the wounds of the past and charting paths forward that transform our society. Everyone must be treated with dignity and respect. In the NCAG podcast, we will lift up leaders who are finding innovative ways to generate healing and build the bridge to tomorrow. We will talk to leaders addressing the entrenched legacy of separation and segregation. We will strategize with those tackling the racist policies and legal structures that continue to impede progress. And we will hear from leaders working to create economic opportunities that can stabilize families. Join us on this journey. Here's our host, NCAG Executive Director, Dr. Gail C. Christopher. Hi, I'm Gail Christopher, Executive Director of the National Collaborative for Health Equity. And I am so excited to welcome our guest today, Inka Jackson, who's leading so much important work for ro- racial justice and social justice in Selma, Alabama. She's leading our TRHT work there. She's leading the work for creating the beloved community. Inka, would you tell us more about your amazing background? You are a national treasure and you are doing such important work locally there in Selma. Um, thank you so much. It's so beautiful to hear that from a real national treasure that is that of you're so responsible for bringing so many of us together to do this um, so uh, essential work. And so um, uh, a little bit about me, I've been a, a teacher, a social worker in the foster care system, a public defender, um, and really realized that, you know, I was going to be organizing around mass incarceration and the school to prison pipeline, all very important things, but I would be doing them forever um, if we didn't get to the root cause uh, of these issues of, uh, of, of and heal the cancer that is racism and deal with economic injustice. And so decided to move back home uh, to Selma, Alabama and um, become the director of the Selma Center for Nonviolence, Truth and Reconciliation. And so we were founded in 2015 to um, address different forms of violence, whether that be economic violence, whether that be racial violence, or whether that be physical violence. Often we don't think about poverty being a form of violence, but we believe that anything that dehumanizes others is a form of violence. Um, And just a little bit about Selma and the context that we were founded in. Uh, 2014, we were the poorest. Uh, county and the state 2015, we were the most dangerous place to live in Alabama. In 2016, we were the eighth most dangerous place for capita in the country. It's insane that this place where nonviolence overcame violence was the eighth most dangerous place per capita in the country. And we believe that broken relationships led to broken economies, leading broken communities, all in need of healing. And so we work with communities to heal relationships, to heal the economy and heal communities, not to fix, but to heal. 
and so that is a little bit about us. Um, Dr. Bernard Lafayette is our board chair uh, and our master cha- trainer and co-founder, and he has given us the charge, Selma 2.0, finishing the unfinished business of bridging divides and building the beloved community. Thank you so much, and the work is so impressive. You know, when we think of Selma, you know, we imagine that march, we imagine that original work back there in the civil rights era, and for you to give us that data today, you know, it's just heart-wrenching in terms of uh, the lack of, of measurable progress. Uh, I'm excited to, to hear about some of the success that you are have, having and some of the ways that you know you're succeeding. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we were really excited to, to partner with, with you all um, uh, for uh, in a number of respects. Um, I'll, I'll start with uh, NCAG um, and um, the, the HOPE data that showed that 40%, only 40% uh, of people in Alabama live in um, counties with a low murder rate. Uh, and and that's really, really sad, <laughs> really, really sad. And so uh, last year, um, our murders went up by 56% from the time when we were the eighth most dangerous place per capita in the country. Really insane. But we're so excited and happy to share, um, and we shared with our partners recently about a month ago, that since we've had boots on the ground with our balance intervention program that we work with NCHE as a part of, um, we uh, murders went down by almost 40%. Um, shootings went down by over 40%. And so really excited that, that we are making progress along with our partners to reduce violence uh, in Selma. And, and that couldn't have happened without some pre-work with TRHT as well. Talk to us a little more about boots on the ground. You know, we, we and, you know, it doesn't sound like those are police boots necessarily. That sounds like that's your community. So if you could just say a little more, take us into your community in terms of these boots on the ground that are actually building relationships that are reducing violence. Absolutely. So our violence intervention program has four components. It's rooted in nonviolence, which is a unique around violence intervention programs. A lot of them aren't, but given our history of nonviolence in, in, in this city, um, we thought that that was important and to help produce a cultural shift. And our street outreach workers, which is the second component, um, come from the communities in which they serve, which is essential that they are, they are trusted um, leaders. They are trusted community members, um, trusted um, vessels to intervene um, in violence, to actually um, go to the scenes when there's violence, but also to just be in the communities on a day-to-day, connecting people with employment and educational opportunities, which is the third component. Um, and really um, ensuring that people have what they need. So not just stop doing violence, right? Uh, but getting to the root causes of why there is violence. So making sure people have what they need. And so really excited about that. And the last component is victim services. Um, when they, we're, we're one of few models that actually serve potential perpetrators 
and uh, victims, um, because we, when getting to the root causes, we understand that all of those people are impacted by um, root causes. And so um, our victim services, our survivor services program, you know, whether that's helping to plan a funeral of a loved one, helping to find resources, doing victim compensation or doing restorative justice circles, right, um, to making sure that that healing, because I'm much more likely to retaliate when I don't have the things that I need. Right. Um, and so making sure that those families have what they need is an essential part uh, of this work. It's a hard part of this work, particularly when there are so few mental health resources in a rural area. Right. Um, but but our team is, is making right. it. Happen. You know, I was reading your bio and it, I believe it said you were the a third degree uh, trainee in the nonviolence work. Could you could you talk to us about what that means? You know, what kind of skills you've you've learned and developed your as I said, you're a national treasure. You're an attorney. You, you've got so much experience at the national level and the international level. But could you share with us the kinds of skills that you learned? to to get your certification in nonviolence work? So um, nonviolence is uh, often misunderstood. Um, often we think of it as uh, doing nothing. Um, and we call that negative peace um, versus doing something which we call positive peace. Positive peace is, is active. It, it, it resists the status quo. It is actually aggressive. It's just that we are taking our aggression on the conditions and, and not on the, the person. Uh, and it is a very difficult balance to hold, right? To attack the problem and not the person. But yet we've tried so many other ways that have, that have not worked. And we understand that you can't build a beloved community without being the beloved community. Right. And so uh, uh, attacking the forces of evil, not the persons doing evil, is essential to, to nonviolence. And so really, I, I will tell you, because I come from a place with so much conflict, I ran from conflict most of my life. I wanted a white picket fence, children, husband, do a little community service. But that's that's it. And of course, that that could not happen. But I had to learn how to. Uh, embrace conflict and lean into it, right? Um, part of uh, harmful dominant culture um, is it, we, we want to run from conflict often, but to lean in it, knowing that it can be a sacred gift um, and build authenticity is, is so important. Uh, and so nonviolence helps us to do that. It helps us to get to the root causes. Um, and so we call this positive peace. Um, I'll, I'll say in short, nonviolence, one word, is what we represent. Nonviolence with a hyphen removes violence, but it doesn't add justice. That's what negative All right. Is. All right. That is so powerful. Could you give us a, a without, you know, uh, violating any confidentiality or anything, but could you tell us a story about a time when conflict manifested as a sacred gift? I really want people to understand you know, what you're telling us. Is that possible? Could you give us an, an example of a, a story? Oh, yes. So um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give uh, an example um, from the work, but I'll also give an example from myself because often we, we think everybody else is the problem, which is part of the problem, <laughs> right? Um, but because racism operates on a personal, cultural, and institutional level, and therefore systemic, 
we have to have all of those solutions as well. And so that personal becomes really important in how racism has impacted us. And so I, I will I will share, but I'll, I'll share first uh, um, about um, in, in within the schools. So we were doing restorative justice work in um, um, in our middle school, a failing school is the most dangerous school in the area and um, very hard work, but also the children got restorative justice innately. Like they they picked up on it and, and people view restorative justice differently. So I'll just say we view restorative justice as um, using what we have in common, like values to make sure everybody has what they need. And so in a circle, you should be leaving with a plan, right? To make sure everybody has what they need. And it's not just discussing things. It's not just talk, but it's, it's to help get justice, to get wholeness. And so these young people embraced this culture so that if something got posted on social media, they would be the ones to say, you know what? They've done this on social media. We need a circle, right? We, we need a circle because otherwise we're go, there's going to be a fight, right? And so they recognize conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional, right? And so they leaned into the conflict and figured out a way through restorative justice to, to bring wholeness. And so I, I'll, I'll give a, a personal example as well, um, which actually relates to, to, to nonviolence. Um, so um, principle um, five of nonviolence says that we are supposed to avoid internal violence of the spirit as well as external physical violence. And we often think that that's, you know, somebody else, right? Right. We, we, we focus on the physical violence, but we often negate the physical, the internal violence we do to ourselves. And um, the biggest way I violate this principle, because I'm a practitioner of nonviolence, so I'm practicing, so I mess up, <laughs> uh, is that I have a lack of rest, right? Uh, and I don't take care of myself. And I used to think, you know, it's okay because my kids, they'll suffer if I die a little bit early, but it, I'm doing it for the cause, so it'll be okay. Um, and I realized that, no, I'm actually doing violence now. And I had a situation where uh, a co-worker said that I raised my voice at them. And when I decided to, to lean into that conflict and not be, not be defensive, not be, but to lean into that, right? So that we can deepen our relationship with each other, but also for me to deepen my relationship with myself and really get to my authentic self and examine not from the place of excuse why I did what I did. And it was many factors, but I'll share this one. Part of it is because I was exhausted and I wasn't in control. I wasn't controlling well my emotions. And so when we don't take care of ourselves, we do violence right now. Right. And so it's so important that as we do this work on the personal, cultural, and institutional level that we we that we are part of the personal, right? And so we are taking care of ourselves and we're right. taking care of our families. 
Uh, I appreciate it. I was just about to ask you, as you were describing the restorative justice circles, you know, within the schools, I think you said it was a middle school. I was just about to ask you to tell us what restorative justice is, because some people may not know. Uh, and you talked about how it's the circle and, and it, the intention is holistic and that everyone leaves with their needs met. But could you also just say a little bit in terms of that it's a process whereby people are engaged and if you could just give us like a quick one minute summary of, of restorative justice or even direct people to your website or something in case they don't know about this wonderful tool. Absolutely. So uh, restorative justice is really about culture. And as a part of that, a circle is a part of that process, right? To create a restorative uh, a restorative culture where uh, there is wholeness, right? Uh, and so in that circle, you want to make sure that uh, people are represented and, and it's not always a conflict circle. You can have a celebration circle. You can have a, a welcome uh, returning citizen circle. Like you can have circles for all sorts of reasons. Because again, it's about culture, not about conflict, right? Um, so that, but you can use it in a situation where there's conflict. And sometimes it takes multiple circles when there is conflict, right? Because sometimes the wounds are so deep. Sometimes with our families, particularly when there's been violence, um, you, you can't bring those sides together at, at one time. You have to do some individual circles and some individual work first. But it's, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful process. We do do trainings and you can email restorativejustice at selmacntr.org, restorativejustice at selmacntr.org to get in contact with us uh, about uh, restorative justice or check out our website, um, www.selmacntr.org. Okay, for, for thank you so work. much for that. And we'll have some resources posted on our website too for folks. Uh, I wanted you to just do a crosswalk for our listeners in terms of the truth, racial healing and transformation work and the work of your center. Uh, it's it's obviously very synergistic. You know, it's just a perfect alignment. And I'm so excited that you are one of the 14 places around the country that the W.K. Kellogg funded initially to do the to apply the truth, racial healing and transformation framework. And everything that you've described, you know, aligns with the, the underlying principles of eradicating the belief in a false hierarchy of humanity and learning to see ourselves in one another and to be there for one another and to address the root cause of the structural inequities. But could you share with us the crosswalk between being a center for TRHT in Selma and your, your basic philosophy and intention? Does that make sense for you as a question? Okay. Absolutely. Um, first, I want to, I have to tell you thank you because Selma was a, a, a late addition because we found out about the work uh, after people were already sort of in process and you all let us in anyway. And, and I know you were leading the work at that time. And so I just have to tell you, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, so Selma is a, a, a really uh, challenging place to to do work in. We, 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 we didn't just change the world in 1965. We changed the world in 1865 with the, the Civil War. Um, uh, Battle of Selma. Um, the war was over within a week because Selma was such a stronghold for the Confederacy. And because of that, um, 
there are it's still a stronghold for the this country and there's still a battle waging right now and so trht came at a very pivotal time um because people sort of identified people as extremists and they didn't feel like there was a place to go people wanted change but they didn't sort of know where to go or what to do with it um and so you know just to tell you how clear this is like uh, a Southern Poverty Law Center employee said that hate groups study Selma to see how a small minority of white people can control a majority of black people because that country is becoming more and more brown. And so they're trying to figure out how to do it. So this is the context that we're in in Selma, right? And so TRHC has been so helpful, um, first with the hearts and minds piece, right? Um, because uh, oftentimes people don't want to fund hearts and mind work. We want to fund material conditions work. Right. Um, and and uh, it's very clear to, to me um, that that we can't um, we, we saw with the uh, Voting Rights Act. Right. That because hearts and minds weren't changed, it was gutted. Right. So we have to have hearts and minds and material conditions. And so TRHC really in the first couple of years, we focused a lot on um, uh, racial healing um, and relationship building and narrative change. And changing the false narrative of the hierarchy of human value. And so we did things like um, we, we would do blogs about issues our communities were um, grappling with and we would go on the radio with them. But then we would have chat and choose at our local coffee shop, which is one of the one places, places that black and white people both come to. And we would have intimate conversations where we would build relationships with each other around uh, these things. I'll, I'll give an example of, of what came, some of the, the, the relationships and, and narrative change that came out of this. One white evangelical Trump supporter, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very different in how I live out my faith than how she lived out hers. Um, she always talked about, well, the fathers need to be in the home. If fathers were just in the home, and through relationship and through her attending religiously before she moved, she was I was able to share with her, like, if that's really your concern, these are all the different systemic blocks to that happening. But we're able to do that rooted in relationship, right? And she was able to share with me, she said, the problem with black and white people is that you give grace and mercy to those you're in relationship with. And we're not in relationship with each other. So we don't give each other grace and mercy. And she went on to share how we extend grace and mercy even politically. So sometimes we look at people and we're like, how can you believe in family values and you support them? Well, she's like, well, we're extending grace and mercy to them. So, but it was through those relationships that racial healing began to take place. And so from that, we were able to expand to material conditions, but we really had to start with the racial healing and relationship. Wow, that is so powerful. So many things you said just landed, you know, right in my stomach, you know, in terms of the the realities of your community. And at the same time, your your resilience and your capacity to do the hard work, you know, of connecting people at a heart level. Uh, so few people are willing to to be patient and to extend that grace. And I'm just so happy to lift up your story and to have people hear that this matters, that it makes a difference. Uh, and I would certainly welcome you to, to, to draw um, a through line for us in terms of how some of that racial healing work 
actually did lead to policy or practice or circumstantial change uh, in terms of people understanding and therefore being willing to, to do things differently. So I, I mentioned earlier that it wasn't, if, if not for uh, TRHT, we wouldn't have been able to have the success with our violence intervention program because it was through those yeah. relationships that we started off so strongly being a part of that set the stage for material conditions work, right? So, so, so let me let me let me give an, another example. Um, we um, uh, partially with the support of uh, TRHC, we were able to um, start a create a uh, racial equity training called Beyond Dividing Conquer Unite and Build that really looks at how race was created to divide us. So a few could have a lot and a lot could have just a little, right? And we did this and it, it uses our theory of change, which is based on TRHT, right? Um, that transformation is the sweet spot is when you have material conditions and heart and mind pieces, right? And it does that in the racial equity training. And that was really important in the Bible Belt South with a lot of evangelical Southerners, right? Because those stories, like telling the stories of John Punch, telling the story of the GI Bill, right? Does something very different than me telling you a definition of race. And it's not that we don't do those things, but starting with the stories and sharing our own stories does something dramatically different. And so it set the stage in a different way. Like we had another white evangelical Trump supporter that in, that recruited more people to our racial equity training locally than anybody else, right? But, but we are very intentional about rooting our work in love. And let me be clear, love is action. Love is accountability. Love is not just touchy-feely. I, I don't not touchy-feely. I'm a touchy-feely person. And love is justice, Right. Uh, and so but through that, though, through those relationships and then through the narrative change work in the learning, people were better able to understand when we started doing the work on physical violence, how that actually was related to um, the, the history and legacy of enslavement, the history and legacy of, of racism, that the, that wasn't a separate thing, right? That the violence that we had um, been dealt, right? We internalized and, 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 and we put forth in the communities that we're around. And so people are be able to support it in a different way. Instead of saying, you know, you're the problem, so you need to deal with it, right? It's like, no, this is a community problem and the community has to deal with it. And so we have so many community partners in part because of how we did the TRHT work from the beginning, rooting it in narrative change and racial healing. You know, we could go on forever, your, your passion and also your clarity about how the work is done. It's, it is such an honor to, to hear your voice, to amplify your voice for the listeners that this work can be done, that we can not only change Selma, we can change America. Uh, as I draw to a close, I just wanted to ask, as we draw to a close, I just wanted to ask you, what do you see for the future? of your work there in Selma? What are your hopes for the future? So I, um, Selma is often used as a backdrop. Um, people come here, they take a picture on the bridge and they leave. 
um, but they don't, they use our infrastructure, but they don't invest in it. Um, and that's partly why we're in the condition that we're in. And so my, my hope for Selma is that we're a model of the beloved community, that people don't just come for our history, they come for our healing. How did you go from the eighth most dangerous place per capita towards to this? How did you go from all of these failing schools to this? How did, and we're in the process of doing it. It's not like, like, like we're, uh, things are all bad, right? We're doing work around beloved community block clubs, innovation centers, uh, innovation center that has transformational coaches in it to help people through personal, cultural and institutional barriers to their dreams, right? We're doing this really amazing work so that when people come, they can take these models back to their own communities, adapt them for their own communities. So we will be we will be and be building the beloved community throughout the country and throughout the world. That that's well, where you I know, Inka. I my mother grew up in Alabama, and so I have a personal connection, and I've been there and experienced the weight of the Confederacy legacy, right, and the weight of the divide. And this conversation with you is healing for me uh, because, you know, I, 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 I get it. And I remember when I was eight years old and I left, it was a small town called Pollard, Alabama, and it may not even exist anymore. But uh, when we left and they, all my relatives said, now y'all come back, you know, and at eight years old, I remember saying, I will never, ever, ever come back to this place because I felt the weight of the Jim Crow discrimination and the pain of it, you know? And so I thank you so much for your courage and for what you are doing. And I'm gonna come to Selma and experience some of that healing uh, that you're describing. And I, I know that there is a, a healing energy just in your willingness to share with us uh, during this podcast. So on behalf of myself and, and all the staff and broader community of the National Collaborative for Health Equity, I again wanna say thank you for being the treasure that you are and for leading the work that you're leading. You've been listening to NCHE Presents, Leaders Pursuing Health Equity in America, a podcast hosted by Dr. Gail Christopher, Executive Director of the National Collaborative for Health Equity. Through resolutions, executive orders, and other mechanisms, local leaders are declaring racism a public health crisis and committing to addressing systemic health and racial inequities. Follow NCAG on all social platforms and visit nationalcollaborative.org to learn how you can implement truth, racial healing, and transformation in your community.